Welcome everyone to tonight's policy and practice seminar on the future of the monarchy. This year is the 70th anniversary of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, who has reigned longer than any previous British monarch. In addition to celebrating her jubilee, thought is beginning to turn to the future of the monarchy after she is gone and what changes might be expected. Fittingly, for an event organized in conjunction with the Constitution Unit, our first two speakers are going to talk about the constitutional aspects of the British monarchy. Dr. Bob Morris, who is the Constitution Unit's expert on church and state, will talk about the next accession and coronation. Dr. Craig Prescott, constitutional lawyer at Bangor University, will explain the need to update the Regency Acts. We're then going to widen the frame with Dr. Carolyn Harris, Royal Historian at the University of Toronto, who will discuss previous jubilees, the role of consorts, and the upbringing of future monarchs, and Professor Helo Kronker, Professor of Constitutional Law at Copenhagen, who will talk about the Golden Jubilee of Queen Margrethe II of Denmark, also being celebrated this year, as well as the functions of the monarchy and the challenges it faces. Each speaker will talk for five minutes at the start, and we'll then have a discussion between the four of us for 30 minutes or so before we open it up to Q&A. Put your questions in the Q&A feature as soon as you like, so that Abby can start collecting them. The seminar will end at the latest by 7.15. And so as our first speaker, let me now invite Bob Morris to talk about the planning for the next accession and coronation. Bob, over to you. Thank you, uh, good evening. It's going to be a fast ride here, so hold your hats on and hang on as we go through. Abby, the second slide, please. So the plan is to talk uh, about what happened in 52, 53, how Britain has changed since, what might be the same and what different following the next demise, and the future of the three O's, which I shall touch on more briefly than they deserve. Next. So here we are in 1952-3, Demise, um, the Accession Council, which is a sort of reflection of the Witten, actually, the old Anglo-Saxon thing in modern guise. Uh, the king chooses his regnal name, not necessarily the one he usually uses. There's a proclamation, the text of which is, I shall show you in a moment, and which is actually approved by the cabinet. The king doesn't attend the first part. He comes to the first Privy Council. He makes a per personal declaration. There, he swears the Scottish oath required under the Union legislation of 1706 to 7. Non crime rex moritur simply means that the king never dies. And that what these first two uh, aspects are about is making sure that there's no division for a moment in the continuity of executive rule. Lying in state, winter funeral down to the Earl Marshal, Protestant declaration, more of that later, Planning the coronation, well, the usual bureaucratic stuff. Next slide, please. This is the proclamation. Somewhat antique language. I've highlighted um, some of the more um, uh, interesting bits, including the bit in green, which always fascinates me. Other gentlemen of quality. Who are earth are they? The point is that it was an all-male occasion in 1952. It won't, I think, on this occasion be the same but the language is likely to be very similar to what it is here. The earliest uh, proclamation I've been able to find was in 1625, and the one made in 1952 is almost word for word the same. 
next. The 1953 coronation, 8,250 people squeezed into the abbey in seating that could reach 12, 11 tiers high in the nave. Largest group with the head would be peers, plus others, fitting out in rehearsals. The Earl Marshal occupied the abbey from January to October, and the um, coronation itself took place 16 months after the accession. TV off and then mostly on. Outside ticketed stands for large numbers of people, shortage of loo is very important. I hope they remedied on this occasion. 44,000 troops lined the route and marched 12 abreast over a five mile route, taking 45 minutes to pass any one point. Service nearly three hours long, Eucharistic with homage of a single non-Anglican present. That was the moderator of the Church of Scotland who presented a Bible. The Spithead Naval Review, 190 ships and 130 naval aircraft. The security problem, there wasn't one. Last point, the last Imperial hurrah. Yes, next. Changes, well, the usual stuff, you know, larger population, big changes in religion. What we've seen happening is that we become more secular, but also more diverse. Church of England baptisms and all that have declined. Humanist marriages in Scotland surpassed Church of Scotland and RC marriages combined, interesting point. Uh, Commonwealth grown from six to 54 independent countries, 14 of which, um, of which the UK is sovereign. Military fourth is smaller. Naval, when I last look, has but 74 commissioned ships. UK no longer a global imperial power and more obviously a union state. Next, future accession ceremonies, what we think we know. More or less the same for the um, uh, accession council, uh, except that the new king plans to address the nation fairly early on, very early on, and visit the devolved capitals before the actual funeral. The funeral this time will be at Westminster Abbey, the first time since 1760. There'll be no post-funeral procession beyond Hyde Park Corner, save for in Windsor, interment in St. George's Chapel, Windsor as before. Uh, what we don't know, whether any part of the accession council will be televised, it hasn't been televised in the past, whether the content of the personal declaration would be changed if the king broadcasts the night before, and how on earth is the Privy Council office to manage 700 plus Privy Councillors all entitled to attend and sign the proclamation. Next. Next coronation, what we think we know. It will again be a holy Anglican and Eucharistic um, coronation, but more inclusive in attendance, but attendance only of minority religions, not acting as celebrants. Uh, one can see some of the way in which people have been experimenting with this over the Commonwealth Day services, uh, the most recent of which was this, this week. No present plans to change any of the oaths or their timing. Position of the Duchess of Cornwall, that's been clarified. She will be known as Queen, which is what the common law requires in the normal course of things. Uh, she will therefore uh, be anointed and crowned at the coronation. The UK, by the way, remains the only European country to have a coronation. What we don't know, existence of any detailed planning on London bridge lines uh, or the outcome of the Archbishop of Canterbury's working party, whether it is accepted that the scale of 1953 cannot be repeated. Um, the Prince of Wales's wish to have a swift, swifter coronation may imply a smaller scale. Cambridge's wedding had 
1,900 guests in the Abbey, and that could be the, the right sort of number. Insufficient troops for long route lining or five-mile procession, so that will have to be cut down. Homage, what steps, if any, will be taken outside the coronation for the king to address and include wider civil society, ethnic and other minority groups in his reign? Next, oaths. There are three oaths. Uh, they were devised between 1688 and 1707, the wording of uh, one of the most troublesome of them, the Protestant Declaration, which was a long diatribe against Roman Catholicism, was changed in 1910. Um, we recommended in a study that we did a few years ago changes to all of them, but they all require uh, difficult and contentious legislation, which no government is going to take up. Um, although perhaps uneasy about the wording, the churches won't propose change for fear of something worse. Probably the only present outcome will be very careful government background briefing, explaining those backgrounds and explaining their status. As in 1910, change may occur only when an heir objects and there is agreement on replacement. So that's probably down to William rather than Charles. Left over is the question whether religious oaths should in principle continue in a modern polity. End of five minutes. Thank you, Bob. You've got it through a huge amount. Um, and uh, London Bridge, by the way, is the code name for the Queen's funeral, uh, for those who don't know. Um, Craig, you're the next. Over to you. Uh, you must unmute. Ah, so, okay, so thank you, Robert. Um, five minutes on councillors of state, really. So, um, essentially, the monarch is required to grant the final formal legal approval to a wide range of decisions within government, um, appointment of ministers, um, royal centre legislation, um, sort of attendance at Privy Council meetings to say approve, to approve various orders, um, appointment of judges, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but the law makes the presumption that the monarch is always available to fulfil this legal and constitutional function. And the vast majority of the time, the monarch is. But sometimes they aren't. Monarchs travel overseas. Sometimes monarchs fall ill. Um, the Queen is now 95 years old. So the Regency Acts provide for a plan B, councillors of state. And the councillors of state are the husband and wife of the sovereign and the next four in the line of succession, who are aged over 21 and domiciled in the UK. So this gives us Prince Charles, Prince William, Prince Harry and Prince Andrew. I'm assuming Prince Harry is still domiciled in the UK for these purposes. The practice, and the law is unclear on this point, is that two act together. Prince Harry and Prince Andrew, for very different reasons, don't conduct royal duties. So on the face of it, you might think, well, what's the problem? Prince Charles and Prince William can both act. And indeed they could. But this is the plan B. What happens if plan B fails? The Regency Acts were designed to provide for some room for manoeuvre to ensure the royal authority could be exercised and gave a pool of councillors of state who could act. You didn't just rely on two. So the problem is that this pool of councillors of state has shrunk. Um, and if you stress test these arrangements, perhaps to use a banking term, then you find that, they, that they're now lacking. You just need a combination of perfectly foreseeable events to all happen in coordination to create a real problem. 
Let's say the monarch is ill in hospital. Prince William is on an overseas tour. Let's say it gets delayed by bad weather, a hurricane in the Caribbean. There's a political crisis and parliament needs to pass legislation urgently. That happens from time to time. In those circumstances, how would royal assent be granted? The dignified part of the constitution risks undermining the efficient. In times past, the palace ensured that there were at least two councillors of state in the kingdom um, in case the need arose for them to act. For example, I think it was in the very late 60s, Princess Margaret was asked to come back from Mystique just a few days earlier, just to ensure that there was the necessary cover. Um, Indeed, from Saturday, Prince William is in the Caribbean for a week. Um, There's one active councillor of state left in the UK. Maybe they've curtailed the length of uh, Prince William's trip, perhaps just to minimise the risk. I don't know. I'm speculating wildly, but it is an interesting point. Um, So what can you do? You can amend the Regency Act to just allow one councillor of state to act. But just relying on Prince Charles and Prince William to always be available um, requires their diaries to be ever more closely aligned. Um, that can get tiresome and might limit the capability of the monarchy to continue doing what it's doing. Um, You may sort of look at other reforms, maybe appoint extra councillors of state. Um, Obvious candidates could be Princess Anne and Prince Edward, um, who, as time has gone on and other members of the royal family have um, grown up, have lost their status as councillors of state. Um, this would sort of follow the 1953 precedent, which specifically made Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, an extra councillor of state, adding to the pool um, after the death of George VI, um, because by that point she was no longer the wife of the monarch. Um, You may also think about appointing the Duchess of Cornwall and the Duchess of Cambridge. They will one day both become councillors of state um, and perhaps they could act with their husbands, which might be quite nice when receiving the credentials from ambassadors or or something. Um, Of course, the difficulty is is perhaps the similar difficulty to what Bob mentioned about the oaths, is that it does require legislation to act. Um, And this will require a little bit of strategy and thinking and some parliamentary management. Um, Because if I was the MP for York Central, I'd be very tempted to table an amendment removing Prince Andrew from the pool of councillors of state, which might put the government and the palace in a little bit of a tricky situation. What would they do then? So as my phone says, my time's up, I'll leave it there. Thank you, Craig. I'm going to give you one extra minute just to explain the Regency side of the Regency Act. So you talked about what happened in the temporary absence of the monarch. Just tell us very briefly what happens in the event of the incapacity of the monarch. Okay, so in the event of the total incapacity of the monarch, then a regent can be appointed who would be the next in... Uh, the, the, uh, so the next in line of succession. So if the Queen became totally incapacitated, then Prince Charles would act as regent and would assume all the functions of the monarch himself, other than um, they couldn't approve uh, an act of, couldn't grant the royal assent to an act of legislation, uh, an act of parliament that... Um, Alter the succession. 
changed the line of succession and altered the status of the Scottish Church, if my memory's right. right. Um, so that's the um, so there a regent is very different to councillors of state because mm-hmm. a regent can act in their own right. They fundamentally take the place of the monarch. Councillors of state are very different. They are just filling in a gap on a temporary basis. A regent is a sort of standing oh, permanent substitute. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Uh, Carolyn, forgive us for eating into your time. Um, now give us a wider perspective. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you very much. There are many different aspects to Jubilee celebrations. These celebrations are not simply an opportunity to celebrate the monarch and their decades of public service, but also an opportunity to take stock of wider historical events over the past 25 or 50 or 60 or now 70 years. And it's possible that medieval monarchs who celebrated 50 year reigns, we have very little evidence of whether they celebrated anything resembling a jubilee. And part of the reason why they may not have have done so is Henry III or Edward III, for instance, might not have wanted to revisit the circumstances of their accessions as children. So that may be the reason why we don't have a lot of evidence of medieval jubilees. We know Henry III had a second coronation as an adult, so it's possible he didn't view his original accession as that moment uh, when he very uh, formally came to the throne, but instead thought of his role um, as an adult. When we look at jubilees that we know were formally celebrated, we see this contrast between looking at the monarch, but also looking at the wider times. George III, for instance, there was popular sympathy uh, for him at the time of his golden jubilee, which was actually celebrated when he began the 50th year of his reign. There was concerns about his health and about his mental health, but there was also critical coverage that noted the American colonies have been lost, prices had gone up, what had happened in Britain over the past 50 years. Uh, Queen Victoria's Jubilees were an opportunity to look at uh, the United Kingdom's relationship with Europe and with the wider British Empire. So we see an interesting contrast in that we have the Golden Jubilee in 1887, where there's a strong emphasis on Queen Victoria as grandmother of Europe, surrounded by her extended family of European royal houses. Yes, there is the original colonial conference and we can see the origins of the Commonwealth, but there's a very strong Britain and Europe and Britain and royal houses from the wider world as monarchs came from as far away as Hawaii in order to attend these celebrations. The Diamond Jubilee in 1897 is very different and the very strong focus on the empire and dominions. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier is knighted as part of the celebrations, military regiments from the dominions and the wider empire. And it's a different focus celebrating Queen Victoria in this imperial role instead of as part of a wider, uh, both actual and um, status-oriented family
really of, of monarchs in Europe and the wider world. So we have these jubilees that are both celebrations of the monarch, but also looking at wider events. And we also see this contrast between celebrations as they're organized at the national and the international level compared to what happens at a local level. And in the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, there were real concerns with her silver jubilee and her golden jubilee that perhaps there wouldn't be the same range of street parties and enthusiasm at the local level. And those fears turned out to be unfounded. There was a great deal of celebration. And we also see various regions of first the British Empire with George III and Queen Victoria and then the Commonwealth today, um, making these celebrations very distinct distinctive at the local level and celebrating the monarch's role within their own country. So when we see press coverage of Jubilee celebrations, the Diamond Jubilee in 2012, often there's a very strong emphasis on the river pageant and the pageantry that's taking place in the United Kingdom. But in the wider world, we see at the local level, these celebrations being emphasized in a national context more widely in the Commonwealth. Of course, Jubilee celebrations are also an opportunity for the public to view the royal family. And it's one of the reasons why there was such interest in Victoria's Jubilees is because she was there in public when she'd had this long period of seclusion after the death of Prince Albert. People were interested in seeing the queen with her family, the queen with significant figures uh, from the wider uh, empire and commonwealth. And there was a lot of interest in this. And this is where we see royal domestic life and political life uh, intersecting in that the royal family both set wider social trends and respond to them. And we see this happening with how royal consorts are perceived, often they're being analyzed uh, within the context of uh, of gender roles at various times, I, uh, idealized ideas of the family. So we have these, uh, so we have royalty being viewed in that context. And what we're seeing going forward is members of the royal family uh, who are interested in having public engagements, but also having a family life as well. And so we see royal tours now, not just including children, like when William and Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, visited the Yukon and uh, British Columbia in 2016. The Prince George and Princess Charlotte weren't simply present, but the tour was structured in a way that enabled the royal couple to be back at Government House in Victoria almost every evening of the tour so they could carry out their engagements and then see their children. If we go back even a generation or two, uh, we see how different that is. Charles and Diana brought William and Harry on many tours, but the children had press calls, but they weren't really integrated into the public engagements. And the Queen and Prince Philip famously undertook long Commonwealth tours without their children. So we're seeing members of the royal family aspiring to a degree of work-life balance and wider public expectations of this as well. Their scrutiny of how William took a paternity leave from his role as a search and rescue pilot, but um, Harry um, did not um, take a paternity leave at that time. So it's interesting to see this scrutiny of members of the royal family in terms of how they're responding to wider trends in domestic life and how they are shaping these trends as well. And I look forward to your questions and our discussion of these themes. Thank you. That was great, Carolyn. Thank you.
And Hella, now over to you to tell us about the Danish Jubilee. Thank you so much. Just give me a second to share my screen. Here we go. We can see it now. Yes, here we go. <laughs> so thank you so much for the invitation to speak today. Of course, it's really hard to compete with Britain. You are celebrating 70 years of uh, the, the Queen's accession to the throne, and we are only celebrating 50 years of the Danish Queen's accession to the throne. And it was actually on the 14th of January this year that Denmark celebrated Queen Margrethe II's 50 years anniversary as head of state. And because of COVID-19, you can tell she's wearing a, a, a face mask on the photo. Um, the official program was limited to just a meeting in the Council of State, a celebration by Parliament and a visit to the grave of the Queen's father, King Frederick IX. And further celebrations are planned for the autumn of 2022. So at the first picture, you can see the Speaker of Parliament welcoming the Queen to Parliament. And the second picture, you can see the Danish Prime Minister um, congratulating the Queen with her 50th anniversary. So moving on, what is the constitutional role of the Danish Queen? Well, of course, the Danish Queen has some formal competences, which we find in the constitution. She is the head of state. She presides the Council of State. She signs, among others, legislation. She signs important treaties, and she dismisses and appoints members of the government. And these are merely formal competences. And I believe that they match very well to some of the formal competences of the British monarch. What is important to understand is that the non-political principle actually applies to the Danish monarch. So she acts on the responsibility of the ministers when exercising the formal competences. Besides the formal competences, the queen also has some, maybe we could call it soft powers or informal influence. And these are just examples. She has weekly meetings with the prime minister, as I believe is also the case in the British uh, situation the British context, she bestows royal orders, medals and titles, she delivers New Year's speeches, and she meets with foreign heads of state. Moving on, since we only have five minutes, let's finally have a quick look at modern forms of legitimization of the monarchy as a state form, and also its challenges. Well, obviously, there's a formal legitimacy in the constitutions and in acts of succession. Those are legal documents, so this is the formal legal uh, legitimacy. But um, what is more interesting in a way is that some modern sort of crazy legal legitimacy arguments have appeared. The first one is that the monarch is a protector, a guardian of democracy based on his or her role as politically neutral. The second argument is continuity. And that's because prime ministers come and go, but the monarch is there for decades. So this is a more sort of stable function in a way. But we also find other kinds of legitimacy arguments. Of course, the popularity of the royal houses, but also their contributions to society, including trade and tourism. And also the monarch being a symbol of national unity, stability and identity in a constantly changing and globalized world. Then if we turn to the future challenges of modern monarchies. Well, first of all, it seems to be increasingly difficult to appear politically neutral. 
because areas such as the humanitarian area, the cultural area, but even sports are becoming increasingly political, political uh, sized, I guess you could call it. And furthermore, the monarch must constant, constantly show contributions to society, which is again difficult without crossing this political line that I just talked about. And then the role of the media, of course, which the former speaker also touched uh, upon, there is absolutely no room for mistakes anymore. And then, of course, many of the modern legitimacy arguments, which I've mentioned, actually depend on each monarch's personal skills and competences. And this means that every generation of monarchs must prove themselves worthy of the crown. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you Hella. And I see on your final slide, you very kindly give a reference to the book you contributed to. I'm going to hold it up. This is a brief plug because our book is out this month in paperback. Um, there it is. Bob Morris and I edited it. And it's called The Role of Monarchy in Modern Democracy, European Monarchies Compare. And it was a comparative study of all the constitutional monarchies in Western Europe, uh, which number eight, including Denmark and the UK. Now, keep your questions coming in. I see we've got half a dozen already. We're going to have a panel discussion for 20 minutes or so, um, and then we'll open it up to, to Q&A. So um, I think my first question uh, is going to be to Hella uh, and all the other panelists. And it's going to be uh, about one respect in which all monarchs have a degree of autonomy, because in your different ways, you've all described how very tightly regulated the monarchy is. But this is the question of abdication. And Hella, I think it's right that Queen Margrethe has said she'll stay on the throne until she falls off. And King Harold of Norway has spoken similarly. And for Queen Elizabeth, our queen, abdication is similarly said to be unthinkable. But in countries like the Netherlands and Belgium, Luxembourg and Spain, abdication seems to be perfectly normal. How do we explain this difference? Hello, would you go, like to go first explaining what appears to be the Scandinavian tradition? And then I'll ask Bob to explain the British tradition. Thank you so much for, for this question, uh, Robert. Uh, I've actually not given that that much thought, I have to admit. Um, it is true that, that the Queen um, has said in Denmark that she's not going to abdicate until she, uh, well, either she, uh, she passes away or, or actually if she becomes um, ill in a, in a way where she would not be able to, uh, to, uh, to um, to hold this uh, uh, her position as monarch in uh, in in in, uh, in uh, a responsible way, and she has said that she has good people around her who would let her know if that was the case. So I guess she is actually opening up this way, uh, expressing that she might abdicate um, even before she dies, should such a situation appear. Uh, but otherwise, I know it is her plan to stay until she. Yeah, is no longer here. Um, I, I must say um, that I haven't really given it so much thought why, why we see these different traditions. I think I might need a, a, a little time to reflect a little more on that and maybe we could pass on okay. the board to someone else. Then let, let's come to Bob. Uh, can I ask, Helen, do you have standing arrangements for Regency in uh, Denmark? So, 
So uh, do, do, we, we so have had I, a region, I, we've had a region, uh, standing regency law only since 1937. Do you have a similar arrangement in in Denmark, or would you have to so, legislate specially so, for a regency? Yes, I I I I believe that the the crown prince is able to to step in for the queen. Um, and definitely in the case that Professor Prescott was discussing about the situation about signing, for instance, legislation, that it could be a problem if, uh, if no one was able to do that. Um, I, I think many members of the Danish Royal Court are able to, to sign, for instance, uh, legislation, and it's never been a problem. I think it's at least four or five members, it's the queen's sister, it's it's uh, two crown princes. I think even the crown prince, the crown princess is able to step in. So that has simply never been a, a problem. And uh, I believe that yes, then it would be the crown prince as regards the regency as you ask. Surely. I, I think the two things that have influenced uh, our royal family, first of all, the experience of the application by Ed, Edward VIII. Uh, which, of course, challenged the whole uh, principle of uh, um, uh, dissent and so on. Uh, but it was also thought to be a dereliction of duty. You know, that that's the last thing they want to uh, repeat if they can avoid it. And, and secondly, we have thought that um, there might be some religious element in all this. Uh, the Queen made it very clear uh, when she was still a very young woman and before she uh, came to the throne, that she saw her life as one of service and that she would continue until the end, whether her life was long or short. And uh, we notice that, um, for example, the, the uh, monarchies in Europe, which seem least likely to abdicate as a sort of normal course, are the ones where there's a, a specific link between the monarch and the national church. Uh, and it, it it might imbue in them a sense of greater obligation. It's difficult to come at this. Um, and we haven't, uh, like you, we haven't uh, necessarily thought our way through this at all. And we just wonder whether uh, that could be an influence that other people, other colleagues here today might think um, uh, some, something to dwell upon in terms of whether you abdicate or you go on to the bitter end. Hello, do you I want think to that the... Yes, Caroline, and, and then I'm going to ask Hella, uh, do you think that might be a factor? Is there still a link between the Danish monarchy and the Lutheran church? But Caroline, go first, and then Hella. I think there are some personal circumstances of individual monarchs across Europe that contributed to their decisions to abdicate. And then the, this then had the result of creating a precedent for their successors. In the Netherlands, for instance, Queen Wilhelmina was queen from the age of 10 and her memoirs, which are called Lonely But Not Alone, give a sense of just what an impact this had on her early life. So when she was experiencing ill health after the Second World War, she made the decision to abdicate and she was celebrated for her role in, in you know, the, the, the Dutch resistance abroad. So this was an opportunity to celebrate the previous monarch and welcome the new monarch, Queen Juliana. So in a sense that created a, gen a, a, a precedent for three generations of Dutch queens to be able to abdicate and then celebrate the new monarch. And those circumstances didn't necessarily um, exist in some of the other countries of the different relationships with abdication. So thank, thank you. Hello. 
Yes, thank you so much. I, I think, uh, Bob, that's a really interesting uh, um, link <laughs> that you have seen there. Yes, it is, of course, true that that, uh, that the Danish Queen is, is also the uh, has to belong to the Lutheran uh, uh, Church. Um, I think, of course, that could be part of the reason, but I think, like uh, Carolyn is saying, there's also a personal story to it, maybe. And I think in the Danish case, now that I've had a little time to think, I think it has to do maybe with, with this, the, the fact that the Danish Queen has a very strong feeling of service towards Denmark and the Danish people because the act of succession had to be amended in 1953 for her to become queen. Otherwise, it would have been her cousin, her male cousin. So this way, the Danes actually voted for Queen Margrethe to become queen one day of Denmark. And I think that has to do actually probably with her very, very strong feeling that she has to, uh, yes. to yes. do her service uh, uh, till the end, so to speak. Yes. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I had missed that. And uh, the other thought that occurred to us at an earlier stage was that they, they, these abdications were planned in the sense of being therapeutic, allowing the heir to grow up and have the small children and all this to get over that and then come into uh, the uh, crown, uh, you know, the prime of, of, of life without uh, the sort of uh, privations, media intrusion that you might expect when you're having children and so on and so forth. But uh, this doesn't seem to have been the case at all. It's just happened, you know, because the people decided, well, it's time to go. It wasn't a part of a plan, in other words, that I thought it might have been. So I, I abandoned my therapeutic um, suggestion. <laughs> now, um, my next question is about the, what we might call the feminization of the monarchy. Because now that all European countries, except for Spain, have introduced gender equality in their rules of succession, we can expect in future there to be as many reigning queens as kings. And we've been discussing the long reign of, of two queens this evening. Um, what changes, if any, do you think, uh, any of you, this might produce if in future we have queens as often as we have kings? Do we have anything to learn from the reign of Queen Margrethe or Queen Elizabeth? Do they have a different style from what a king would have had? What feminine stamp they put upon the monarchy? Mm. Carolyn, do you want to go first on this? It's very interesting to see when we look at coverage of the early years of Queen Elizabeth II's reign, there's a very strong emphasis on the fact that she is married to Prince Philip and is the mother of two young children. And a lot of the coverage at the time contrasts the queen with her younger sister, Princess Margaret, who was seen as struggling to find the right person to settle down. So it's very interesting how Queen Elizabeth II and Princess Margaret were instantly placed within that framework of 1950s uh, gender roles um, for, uh, for women their age. And so I think what we're going to see going forward is there being uh, this scrutiny of members of the royal family within that context of a wider changing society. And I think we have already seen that in terms of 
Charles and Camilla's marriage being analyzed within the context of divorce and blended families, there being press coverage and how well their, their children get along with each other, for instance. And with William and Catherine, there was interest in how they met at university, they dated for a number of years before they married, how this seemed very similar to how many other people uh, meet their spouses, but quite dissimilar from Charles and Diana, uh, who had, had a comparatively short courtship uh, before their, their marriage. I think we're going to see a lot of these kinds of intersections of the public looking at the social trends of their time, attitudes towards women and men and how they relate to one another, and seeing how the royal family fits into this framework is over the Queen's 70-year reign, the Queen uh, has been um, has been analyzed within this context of changing gender roles. And the Queen's own opinions seem to have changed over a 70-year period. She gave an early speech where she where she was very against divorce and the effect that that has on on families. And then we see um, later in the Queen's reign, you know, you know her welcoming, you know, you know Camilla into the family and now expressing a, a wish that she be the next queen consort. So we see back and forth the royal family and wider society interacting with one another. Hello, anything you want to add? Queen Margaret's uh, father was king, so you had a male monarch before her and you're going to have a male monarch after her because the heir is a crown prince. It's where um, actually in, going, sorry. In what ways do you think Queen Margaret? Has, has feminized the Danish monarchy? Well, I think it's a really interesting question because uh, the thing is that uh, it has always been extremely important for the Danish queen to, to say that she is not a feminist and that she has never really found that her gender was particularly important um, for her. Um, she has said though um, that, that it some things might have been easier for her in the sense that because she was a woman and all the monarchs before her almost were men. Um, people didn't really expect the same as they would expect from, from a man maybe, but, uh, but she has never uh, publicly supported sort of, a, sort of a feminist case in any way. Uh, and she has often expressed that, I, I, I believe. I mean, she's rather old fashioned, I think. Like you were saying, Caroline, it has probably changed a bit the past maybe 10 years, just expressed some more sort of modern points of view. But, um, but I think nevertheless, she is a role model, of course, for women, even if she doesn't feel that way. Now, I see lots of questions coming in, which is great. And we'll come to the Q&A uh, in the next five minutes or so. But I have one last question for the panel, and that's about the size of the royal family, because this has been an issue in Britain uh, with Prince Charles saying that when he becomes king, he anticipates slimming down the royal family. At present, there are 12 working members, as it were, of the British royal family, partly because of our large size in terms of population, partly because the British royal family has to serve not only the population of Britain, but also those 14 other countries around the world of which uh, the Queen is still head of state. Bob, do you want to go first on this question of size? And then I might again ask Hella um, to talk about the size of the royal family in Denmark. Uh, which has a much smaller population. I looked it up, Hella, it's I think 5.8 million. Um, and then Craig, I can see you raising your pen. Can we come to you as well? Bob, you go first, and then Hella yes. and Craig. 
Well, we have thought, I think, that numbers are important. That is, we have a population of 67 million and uh, a vast uh, uh, population, of course, across, across the Commonwealth. And as the Queen says, I mean, she has to be seen to be believed. That's true of the royal family as a whole, I think. And uh, so one has been a little hesitant to think that it's possible to reduce the size of the royal family um, to anything like the sort of size that might be appropriate for Sweden, which is a population of 10 million or so, um, or uh, of, of, of uh, uh, the Netherlands, which has a population of 19 million. And I, um, on the other hand, uh, what this raises is a question is what it is it that we want them to do? And of course, that's never been defined. Uh, maybe perhaps one of the outcomes of the prince reviewing uh, the size of the royal family will be some more rather explicit attempt to uh, secure an agreement about what it is the family should do, how far should they spread themselves, what are the roles, and what are the numbers of people that might uh, credibly be uh, able to discharge them. Hello, I'm guessing with your smaller population, uh, you can have a much smaller royal family carrying out royal duties. Yes, I guess that's probably true. Um, it is really just the, the closest family. It, it, it's a queen's sister, I believe. It's, but as you could tell, she also performs even sometimes constitutional duties when the queen is, is, is not able to. Uh, and it's, 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 of course, the closest family, the, 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 the crown prince and his younger brother. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, the crown prince's children um, will, will also, uh, I mean, are part of this royal family. But it's, it's really rather small, I think, compared probably to the, the British situation and context. Uh, maybe you're right that it equals the, the size of the, of the population. I don't think we have as much debate maybe about this in Denmark as you probably do in Britain. That's my impression. Thank you. Craig. Um, I was just going to say, um, I think there are potentially great risks with slimming down the size of the royal family, because as Bob says, the question is, um, what is the monarchy meant to do? But I, I think that the other question is, what is it going to stop doing? And you're going to create perhaps some disappointment at the things that then get left out. Um, there was already a story um, I read in the newspaper, I don't know how much credence it has, but um, saying that BAFTA were disappointed that Prince William didn't attend the film awards on Sunday in person. And, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, if you have a, a smaller royal family, they're going to be able to do less. And the organisations of, of which... Um, members of the royal family are, are patrons of or involved with will, you know, have to do less and be spread, potentially spreading themselves more thinly, perhaps creating disappointment. And, you know, if I was, you know, if I was in BAFTA and, you know, my patron couldn't attend regularly for the, the biggest night of the year of my organisation, I might at some point think maybe we look for another patron. Um, so I do think there are potential risks with slimming down. Um, the size of the royal family. I think the, att the attention they give to civil society is absolutely crucial to their role. And if that's thinned out, then we have to be very scrupulous about what we expect them to do. Yes, and if you talk to any Lord Lieutenant, these are the people who broker the requests for royal visits from the counties all around the country. 
they will tell you that the demand far is far greater than the supply. Now, Abby, um, we've got lots of questions. Keep them coming in. Um, but could you give us the first group of three? Sure. Thanks, everyone. So Sir David Nautzler asks, why can the monarch not give royal assent from outside the United Kingdom? And why does Bob think that Prince Harry is domiciled in the UK? If that was disputed, would it not be a matter of legal interpretation and would the courts not rely on tax precedents? And then Sophie asks, why do you think Andrew and Harry have remained councillors of state? How likely is it that they will be removed? And finally, John asks, what is the significance of the UK being the only monarchy to hold coronations? Right. Um, let's ask Bob to answer about royal assent and defend his remark that Harry is probably still domiciled here. Let's ask Craig to answer the question about Andrew and Harry remaining councillors of state. Um, and let's ask uh, Carolyn uh, for a view on why perhaps we're still the only country in Europe to have a coronation. And Hella, your observations on why and when Denmark gave up having a coronation, if indeed you ever had one. Bob first, and then- I, uh, well, I don't think I said that he was domiciled in, um, in, still in the UK. I think it was well, Craig. Yes, but uh, that's an issue, of course. And he certainly can't act if he is abroad. Uh, now, whether one should um, uh, uh, permit royal assent to be given from um, outside the country is, I suppose, partly a matter of, uh, uh, as it were, law or the arrangements that you could have, and practicality. Um, it, it's not always the case they'll be readily accessible. It might be that you have uh, some breakdown of communications uh, which could persist as I've experienced this afternoon. And <laughs> it's, it's, it, uh, if you want greater certainty and immediacy, then it seems to me that it's not unreasonable to expect people to be in the country when they give royal assent. Craig, Harry's um, got Yes, just as the point about Prince Harry's domicile, um, in a former life, I, I was a sort of tax lawyer um, and you know that the precedents on on domicile um, show that it's all a matter of fact and degree and it's all very fact specific um, and domicile is in principle quite hard to lose um, and it does seem that Prince Harry has retained the lease on Frogmore Cottage which which is an indication about him potentially retaining his domicile and he has also retained British citizenship um, so, you know, it, it's, it's not clear. I'm leaning towards saying he has retained his British domicile. Um, and then what was the other question? Sorry. Sorry, Robert. I, I think that's all uh, you need answer, actually. Oh. Oh, well, it was uh, why they haven't, sorry, it was a wider question. Why Andrew and Harry haven't been removed already as councillors of state? And I, I think, well, this, the simple answer is the Regency Act says that Andrew and Harry are councillors of state and it takes an act of parliament to remove them because you'll have to amend the Regency Act um, to remove them as councillors of state. And that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Now, the third question was why the UK is the only remaining European monarchy to have a coronation. Carolyn, do you want to go first on this and then I'll come to Heather? 
Well, it's interesting that there's some remarkable continuity with coronation rituals. The queen actually visited uh, Bath Abbey in 1973 to celebrate the thousandth anniversary of Edgar the Peaceable uh, being crowned with a coronation service that has remained consistent to the present day. The Bible passages, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed King Solomon, hallelujah, hallelujah, God save the king that those passages were set to music by George Frederick Handel in the 18th century, but there's remarkable continuity in the ritual. We compare to some other aspects of royal ritual like royal weddings or jubilees or announcements of royal babies. We often see a lot of innovations being introduced in the Victorian era and the early 20th century. With the coronation ritual, there's remarkable continuity in terms of the place. It's been Westminster Abbey since 1066 and the ritual itself. We also see in the United Kingdom when a new dynasty um, comes to the throne, even though these new dynasties are related one way or another to the previous dynasty, they often add more pomp and circumstance to emphasize their own legitimacy. So some of the Georgian monarchs were quite fascinated by Tudor ceremonial, George IV in particular, and uh, George II's consort, Queen Caroline, collected Tudor and Stuart portraits. Uh, and, and, and we see the Tudors um, adding more ceremony to the royal birthing chamber where royal babies came into the world that, that Henry VIII's grandmother is believed to have drawn up these ordinances to make the arrival of royal children more significant. So I think we have a combination of coronation rituals that have existed for a thousand years, but also when there are new dynasties that come to the throne, they want to emphasize older rituals in order to reinforce their own legitimacy and connection to historic traditions. Thank you. Hella, has Denmark ever had a coronation? Yes. I, I have to say I'm not a historian and I, I'm not very familiar with the more sort of historical perspectives, but might I instead actually just follow a bit up on, on Craig Prescott's discussion about uh, signing, for instance, legislation from abroad, because uh, now I'm going to be a bit uh, provocative maybe, but we are living in the digital age. And actually in Denmark, we did see that during the COVID-19 period, especially because for the first time ever, there was actually a, a um, uh, 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 the, the Council of State actually took place online, <laughs> simply on Zoom, which was, I mean, something that had never happened before. And therefore, we could ask, I guess, would it be, would it be possible actually to sign, for instance, legislation electronically from abroad? I, I, I think we have to ask ourselves such questions since times are actually changing. And I think COVID has been pushing this development somehow. Well, there we go, the digital monarchy. Craig, I'm sorry, I'm not going to ask you to respond because we've got lots more questions to get through. Abby, give us the next round, please. So Robin asks, would it be beneficial for the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Cambridge to begin attending the monarch's meeting with ministers? Gemma asks, how has the monarchy's recent unpopularity impacted its future slash stability in the UK? And Catherine says, Bob Morris mentioned that one of the changes since 1953 is that the UK is now a union state. How problematic in a devolved state is it for the Church of England to crown the monarch and act as if it is the Church of Britain? Bob, a lot of those are in your territory. <laughs> Would you like to go first? Um, 
Right. Well, um, unpopularity and its effect. Well, it's, it's difficult to read this um, because, uh, of course, uh, the people who are members of the royal family have misbehaved in the past. Um, and uh, one where he remembers uh, past Duke of York, who in 1809 uh, was found to have been probably complicit with his mistress, who was selling commissions in the army. Um, but he came back after a while and uh, continued his rather good work with the with the army reforms. Um, so um, it, it's difficult difficult to read this, I think, at the moment. Um, life is up and down for all families, and that's just. Uh, more apparent sometimes when things go wrong in the royal family. Um, uh, union state. Well, the position of the Church of England, of course, hasn't changed. I mean, it has always been the, the celebrant since, since the act of, um, of union in 1706-1707. Uh, and uh, this is, you could argue, is an anomaly. Um, what I was trying to point out was that uh, we are more obviously a union state than we, we were simply because legislatures have been set up in, in the three other uh, ca nations' capitals. Um, and we're probably too small to be uh, uh, move on from that to a federal society, uh, which is sometimes argued for. I think we're going to continue to be a, a union state. That is, if all the states stay in the union. Well, tell us briefly in the plans for accession uh, about the recognition that there will be of the special place of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Yes. And the visits that uh, Charles plans, yes. etc. Indeed. Uh, one of the very first things the uh, Prince of Wales, we understand, plans to do is not only address the nation, as it were, or more or less on the day uh, following, or if not before, uh, the Queen's death, but he will also. Uh, very swiftly, uh, and before the funeral, which will take place about 10 days after the death, uh, visit all the uh, legislatures in the devolved country, uh, devolved legislatures. So he will visit both Cardiff, Edinburgh, and, and Belfast. And um, there will be services of commemoration there. And he will, um, by his visits, emphasize, of course, the fact he, he's king of the whole of the United Kingdom and all its parts. And that's something which was not attended to in past coronations or demise, as we say, um, in the way that uh, as assiduously as, as, it, 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 as he plans to do. There were, there were visits paid, but in a rather more desultory and uh, later sort of fashion. And uh, I think the Prince of Wales is acutely aware of the need to um, emphasize his care for all the parts of the United Kingdom. And that's, that's going to be a significant change, I think, in this, in this case. And it could be tricky territory for the monarchy, uh, given the pressures for independence from different parts of the country. Um, anyway, we mustn't digress. Craig, could you answer the question uh, about whether the Prince of Wales and Prince William might start attending audiences uh, with the Prime Minister or other formal business like meetings of the Privy Council? Well, I believe Prince Charles already does have occasional formal contact with ministers. Um, that's my understanding. Um, but um, there, there is an, um, 
but more generally, they do meet ministers at, at state banquets and the like. So, you know, there is interaction between ministers and members of the royal family on a, on a broader basis, away from um, actual formal audiences. Um, so they are there in sort of the general scene in, in some respects. Um, I was thinking of um, Liechtenstein, actually, um, because I, I spoke with um, Prince Hans Adam and Prince Alois of Liechtenstein a few weeks ago. And it's interesting there because obviously the, the Prince of Liechtenstein has a much more active role in politics. And, you know, th they were already bringing um, the, uh, not the heir, but the heir, but one into meetings with ministers because Prince Alois is exercising most of the functions on behalf of the of the reigning prince. And his son is already in meetings with ministers occasionally, and he's 26. So other monarchies do think about this, um, perhaps more extensively than the UK does. But I think it perhaps reflects the fact that, um, you know, the UK monarchy isn't involved in active decision making, that they do act on the advice of ministers in general. So, um, I think it, it really depends on how actively involved the monarch is in making decisions as to how significantly you bring the next in the line of succession in, in into this in part of, as part of their preparations. But I do know Prince William and the Queen have had several regular meetings at Windsor Castle, sort of going through the red boxes. That seems to be the apprenticeship. Mm. That, that our monarchs serve is going through the red boxes. Time to crack on for the next round of questions. I think we're, with any luck, Abby, we might get through two more rounds. So okay. give us your, your next set of three. So Keith says, isn't there a strong argument that on the Queen's death, instead of proclaiming King Charles III, a council of state be formed, then a decent interval of six months be allowed to pass, followed by a referendum on whether or not to continue with the constitutional monarchy. And Robin says, will there be a change to the letters patent regarding eligibility for princely titles and the style of HRH? And Philippe says, do you expect that the realms who have the Queen as head of state in a distinct national capacity will send representatives to the UK's accession council. Very good. Um, so forgive me, Hella, I think these questions are for the, the British and Canadian members of the panel. Um, I, Craig, I'm going to ask you if you would to answer the question about the letters patent. <laughs> um, Bob, do you want to go first on whether a referendum should be held six months after accession? Um, about whether we want to become a republic and tell us briefly about the state of public opinion on that question. Um, and then the question about the realms, um, Carolyn, I'm going to, to throw to you, if that's all right. Very good. Right, so, Rever Bob, refer right. referendums. Uh, as, as our book uh, points out, um, there have been a lot of uh, referendums in relation to the European monarchies. Um, there hasn't been one in this country. Uh, the republicanism uh, of an explicit kind is rarely registers much above 20% uh, of the population. It's much more common sentiment amongst younger people, apparently. And it's possible to read that as something that uh, uh, they take a different view of as they, as they get older and 
uh, recognize what the monarchy uh, does or does not do. Um, uh, I, I think one would have to have a lot of evidence that um, a referendum was essential to deal with a change of sentiment of the kind that we have not seen in this country. Uh, it may be that um, the Queen has benefited from her gender in the sense of the way in which the population reacts to her, not only as a young woman, but in her mature years as well. And uh, I, I think uh, one would need a test of the kind that uh, relates to the possibility of a referendum on the amalgamation of the Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, where you'd have to be satisfied that there was a case for uh, this because of the state of opinion of the time. So I, I, I don't think uh, this is, is really on the, on the cards. The other point I would like to make is that except for the fact that we have an hereditary head of state, we have for centuries lived in a republic. We are what, what Tennyson described as, as a republic, a crowned republic. Even uh, the observer of the 1860s, who we still revere, that is uh, the former editor of, of The Economist and his book on the uh, crown, said that, that at that time, that he noticed that a republic had inserted itself, itself into the folds of a monarchy. So you have to ask yourself, what would actually change if we did remove to move ourselves to a, an explicit republic? So that, that last quote was from Badgett. Uh, Craig, uh, you want to talk about um, possible changes to the letters patent. I think the question was to remove the uh, title of HRH. Um, yes, well, it, it certainly could be a possibility. Um, you know, uh, the monarch can issue a new letters patent sort of setting out the rules for who is eligible to be called a prince and who is eligible to have the style of HRH. Um, this could be... Uh, part of Prince Charles's thinking of slimming down um, the royal family. So um, maybe he might be looking at um, focusing on the direct line of succession and ensuring that only they sort of get, um, their, them and their children only get um, HRH status and princely titles. Um, as it is, there are some members of the royal family who could be titled prince or princess or have HRS status that um, have chosen not to use it, um, in particular Princess Anne's children. Um, so there could be more developments on that front, but that's up to Prince Charles and, and could be part of his thinking. Thank you. And Carolyn, uh, a question about the realms, um, and perhaps also you might answer a broader question about whether you think there might be any referendums in any of the realms about whether to become a republic after the queen dies. Regarding referendums in the realms, um, there's been some controversy in Barbados as Barbados became a republic without there having been a referendum. And so other Caribbean nations who uh, decide to reopen the Republican question may well decide to have referendums to avoid that controversy. Certainly around the time of the Diamond Jubilee, um, there was talk in Jamaica about Jamaica 
Jamaica becoming a republic at that time. Those sentiments seem to have faded with a change in prime minister and a very successful royal tour by Prince Harry at, at that time. So we may well see referendums in the Caribbean realms responding to recent events in Barbados. Australia certainly has a history of having held a referendum, and that may well take place again. Regarding the Accession Council, the overall historical trend is towards the Commonwealth realms becoming more and more involved over past re reigns. But I'd like to hand that question over to Craig and Bob, who probably have more insights to share about the constitutional implications. Bob, I think the uh, Commonwealth High Commissioners are invited to attend the first part of the Accession Council. Yes, they, they are indeed, and um, it's not settled yet uh, to extent the extent to which there will be a distinction drawn between uh, those that have the Queen as head of state, that is, the fourteen uh, of them, and and the uh, the remaining uh, numbers, which are about fifty, of course. But they uh, certainly all attended in a smaller number in nineteen fifty-two. Thank you. We've just got time for a final round, uh, Abby. Last round of questions, please. Perfect. So Claire says, could you all please comment on the Republican movement? What will it, what will it be its next steps? Um, how likely is its success, particularly in Canada? Um, and then Sophie asks, Charles and Camilla's trip to Ireland overlaps with the Cambridge's visit to the Caribbean. If anything happened to the Queen during this time, can Andrew act as Councillor of State? And then finally, Colin asks, does the panel think that the Commonwealth will survive the next generation of royals? Right. Carolyn, could you answer the first and third question about the Republican movement um, and answer it specifically with reference to Canada? How strong is Republican sentiment there? Um, and also answer, answer Colin's question. So Canada has always been seen as a fairly friendly environment for royal tours. So we see William and Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, made their first overseas uh, royal tour as a married couple uh, uh, to Canada. And so Canada is generally seen as a place where members of the royal family are warmly received. And there's a long history of members of the royal family residing in Canada for extended periods of time. And of course, the most recent and famous example is Harry and Meghan in early 2020, which attracted a great deal of media attention. There is Republican sentiment, but I think there's a more widespread, uh, rather than, than fierce Republican sentiment, a gradual drift from interest in the institution as a whole. And part of that may be misunderstandings regarding the system of government. At the time of the Golden Jubilee, there was a poll in which more than half of Canadians said that the monarchy was important to Canada's identity and distinguishing Canada from the United States. But in that same 2000 2002 poll, only 5% of the respondents correctly named the Queen as the head of state. There were misunderstandings, views that the Prime Minister or the Governor General were in that role. So it can be difficult. We look at polling data, which does indicate declining interest 
in the uh, monarchy in Canada, but often it's very strongly shaped by the nature of the question. If the question's about respect for the queen, there tends to be uh, more interest there. And whereas if the question is about royal finances, there tends to be less interest. But many of the people being polled perhaps don't think that much about the monarchy and its role in Canada's constitution outside of these particular circumstances. It, it seems unlikely, even if polling data indicates there is declining support for the monarchy, it seems unlikely that there's going to be a formal change simply because of how complicated it is in Canada. All 10 provinces would have to agree, the Senate and the House of Commons, uh, their uh, treaties with Indigenous peoples as well, or with the Crown. So it would be a very complicated process to change the system of government in Canada. And it seems, unless it was an absolute overwhelming Republican sentiment in all provinces, it seems unlikely that a political figure would stake their career on this particular question. So attitudes towards the monarchy change over time, but it would be a very complicated process for there to be a formal change in the system of government. And that high threshold against constitutional change, I think is one of the barriers in some of the other realms, and Jamaica being a strong example. Mm-hmm. Now, um, finally, Craig, could you answer Sophie's question um, about Charles and Camilla being in Ireland and the Cambridges in the Caribbean? Yeah, so, well, I would imagine that, that if, if something happened so urgently, that then clearly I'd imagine Prince Charles would soon come back to the UK as, as quickly as possible in a, in a practical sense. Um, the uh, I think I'm just trying to get the precise terms of the question, but um, so the Queen is totally incapacitated and is likely to be so for some considerable time, then Prince Charles would be appointed as regent. Um, and that's a, a relatively straightforward process. You, you, you need to get the, um, some medical evidence and then three of the following five need to approve it, which is the master of the roles, the Lord Chancellor, even though the office has been amended with the 2005 Constitutional Reform Act, but still the Lord Chancellor, um, the Speaker of the House of Commons, um, and the others escaped me. I was, I was going to rhyme all five off them, but it's sort of... Uh, I think it's the Lord Chief Justice. Lord Chief Justice is... The, uh, and the spouse, if available. And the spouse, if available, yes. So, um, so the process is there to do it. Um, but there is an interesting ambiguity in, in the act, which is when a councillor's estate required, because the monarch is just unwell, uh, but when is the situation so serious that a regent is required? And there's, a, there's, an, you know, there's a, an interesting sort of tension between the two provisions. Um, total incapacity of the monarch is a, is a really high threshold. Um, so it, it seems the emphasis is on councillors of state yes. as opposed to regent. And total incapacity, as you mentioned, has to be certified on the basis of yeah. medical evidence. Yes. Now, forgive me, it is now 7.15. I promised we would end then. I'm very sorry anyone whose question we couldn't reach. Before I thank tonight's speakers, let me just mention two things. This is the last seminar where I'm working with Abby Turner, who's leaving us next month for Pastures New. She's been a wonderful partner in planning and publicizing the seminars, and we shall all miss her greatly. 
And it's the ninth year that I've been convener of these seminars, and I hope next year to pass on the torch. So I'd like to thank everyone in the audience for your continuing support, your interest in these seminars, and all of your excellent questions as evidence tonight. But in conclusion, let me thank tonight's speakers. Special thanks to Carolyn joining us from Canada and to Hella Kronka joining us from Denmark. And thank you also to Craig Prescott from Bangor and to Bob Morris here in London. It was a fascinating discussion and a great way to end this term seminar series. Thank you all of you very, very much. Abby, a drum roll, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you, all of you. Good night.